You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it certainly looks like the media spotlight is back on the U.S. regional bank business. Uh, given today's big deal, BB&T is merging with SunTrust Banks in a $28 billion deal, creating the sixth largest bank in the U.S. To help us break it, this deal down and what it means for the sector overall, we have two interesting guests today that will help us do that. First is Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. He's on the phone uh, in New York. And Arnold Kakuda. Arnold is a senior credit analyst covering the global banking sector for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. I'll start with you, Chris. What do you make of this deal? Why did this deal happen? Why did it happen now? I think mostly this is about cost savings. Uh, these are two very consistent performers. They're big. Um, they're probably two of the largest banks that would be allowed to do a deal by regulators right now. Uh, U.S. Bank could also do a deal if they chose to, but they like the size they're at, which is roughly where these two banks are going to be. And you look at the asset and equity returns, and like I say, they're dead center of peer group one, which is all the big banks, anything above $10 billion in assets. So, you know, to me, they're going to consolidate the back end. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. They have slightly lower uh, funding costs and the big banks. And they're good C&I lenders, kind of middle market uh, lenders. Uh, Resi is not a huge part of their book in either case, although SunTrust used to be very big in residential lending before the, uh, the crisis. Um, but unlike a U.S. bank, they don't have that big trust business, that big off-balance sheet component uh, that would make them a money center. So they're still a big, big regional bank now, if you look. And the valuation's yeah. 1.3, 1.4 times book, about the same. So, Arnold, come on in here, Arnold Kukuda of Bloomberg Intelligence. Is there a risk that when banks start to get very big through consolidation, that they start feeling compelled to take on more risk and go global? Is that sort of a concern from a credit perspective, or is this wholly a positive? 
Well, so far it looks like um, you know the, the combined entities, uh, their their asset quality, credit quality is going to be you know towards the the better end of peers, and you know they're not talking about you know taking on more risk. If anything, you know they have a good um, you know synergies overlap in the mid Atlantic. You got you got um, BB&T more mid Atlantic focus, and then um, um, SunTrust who has more of a Southeast and mid Atlantic. So you know taking out costs is the first thing, and then that's going to help their efficiency ratio, which is basically your cost as a percentage of revenue, which is going to be pure leading exceeding even uh, lower than even U.S. Bancorp, which should bring their returns, their profitability to the highest of the peer group. So, you know, that that's something that, you know, really that's what the equities trade on is profitability. And if that's going to take that higher than U.S. Bancorp, you know, there's a lot to like. And, and I think you see it in the stock reaction today. So, Chris, they, it's interesting they, to note yeah. that. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, they are efficient. They're very good at what they do, especially BB&T. See, I, I, I describe this as an exemplar getting together with a very good uh, bank. You know, BB&T, as far as lending and overall operational efficiency, is great. But what they don't have is that huge funding advantage, you know, 40-plus basis points that U.S. Bank has because of their fl- their float from their custodial business and everything else. Their, their funding costs is half of the average for Peer Group 1, which is extraordinary. And that's because you have a lot of employers and a lot of other customers who just leave money on deposit yeah. with U.S. Bank. Well, so, Chris, I mean, you, both you as well as Arnold, both of you are are talking very positively about this transaction. Mm. The the stocks. But to your question, yes. The answer is yes. Will they have to chase bigger loans? Yes. No question. Oh, in other words, take more risk. Yeah, and they don't bank the way a community bank banks. A bank at the community level knows their customers. Once you see these large mergers, the ability of the branch managers of those banks gets constrained because the Fed starts to look at them like a big bank, to your point, right? They, they end up in a world where the law of large numbers governs their production more than know your customer. Mm. And that's why the small bank is much better at managing credit. So, Arnold, um, is, that, is that consistent with what you've seen in terms of smaller banks taking on uh, a bit, uh, uh, like, perhaps risk, but they actually know who they're dealing with, whereas uh, at big banks, customers become numbers and there can be more sort of holistic credit concerns. I mean, there is a concern with that, right, where, you know, they say scale helps profitability, but then again, well, if you're having fewer eyeballs or technology to kind of look through something while your revenue is increasing, uh, things uh, can fall through the track uh, cracks. But, you know, then again, it's uh, you do get efficiencies in technology. Right. So, you know, the more you can invest there and then you have a bigger base to kind of uh, offset it over, then then yes, definitely. I think I think that helps, too. But but more so, I think, um, you know, in terms of added oversight, um, you know, the 250 billion, they're, they're both exceeding that. Right. You have, you're taking two 220 billion banks pretty much doubling the size, you're going to go over $250 billion. But a key thing, I think, that is driving this merger and that I think will drive even more regional bank mergers is uh, this October proposal by the Fed, which really lowers uh, regulation for the regional banks. And so kind of the new threshold to look at, I think, in terms of uh, big regional banks is $700 billion. Right. And so yeah. U.S. Bank Corp yeah. at 470 billion and you still got a long way to go from that. So I think as long as you stay under 700 billion, you're still going to get this, uh, you know, less regulation that, that that's well, going to come into effect right. in October. But, 
it's size, but it's also the, the composition of the business. If you have a lot of touch points with many other financial institutions, then even somebody as boring as Bank of New York, I love them, right, but they're a custodian. They are very significant in the grand scheme of things. A U.S. bank has much more street exposure. And then another one that you know we could talk about in this group is PNC. PNC has much more Wall Street exposure than a BBT or a SunTrust. You know, these are two commercial lenders. They come from the southeast, which was a tough area. It still is. The the off-market areas still haven't come back in the southeast. So, you know, it's an interesting merger, but I agree with my colleague. I think cost savings is driving this. Um, And there was nothing else to do. They could buy a smaller bank, but it's not going to move the needle. Um, So, Arnold, the street barely cares about this transaction. Let's be fair. We all love banks, but, you know, it's not that big. Right. So, Arnold, so the, the, obviously the equity markets like this deal, both SunTrust and BBT stocks are up. Does a credit market support consolidation in the banking sector? Well, um, you know, unlike M&A and other space where, you know, typically you'd see huge bond deals to, to finances, this is an all stock, um, you know, merger. And then, you know, you don't need that financing. And, and the thing with that is, you know, banks are highly regulated. They need to keep their equity ratios, you know, where they are or, you know, at, at, at high levels. And, and even post merger, you know, the, the, they're still targeting uh, a 10% common equity tier one ratio, which is, you know, still pretty solid. So, um, and, and, and the thing is, you know, we talk about size, they're increasing in size, but they're not going to become global systemically important banks, right? Yeah, exactly. um, you know, we, you know, Chris exactly. talked about kind of the, 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 the state streets, the, the, the U.S. bank course, but I'm sorry, I'm the um, BNY Mellons. But th- those guys, even though asset wise, they're not that big. Their huge custodial, global custodial presence makes them highly systemically important, right? So that's yeah. why they're, they're considered GSIBs, higher equity and debt requirements. So but, this is not the case for uh, you know, the merger that we see today. Well, I'm sure that we will have you both back on when we announce or when we discuss the next merger between uh, two regional banks that will inevitably get announced based on this backdrop that makes a lot of sense for them to do so. Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, and Arnold Kakuda, senior credit analyst uh, focusing on the global banking sector for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Both of you, thank you so much for being with us. So earlier this week, we were speaking with the head of fixed income for J.P. Morgan's private bank, Tom Kennedy, who said that when the Fed talks about being patient with raising rates, it means they are not going to raise rates for the next three months, but then they're going to be data dependent again. Joining us now to weigh in on that and all things fixed income is Kevin Giddis, executive vice president and head of fixed income for Raymond James. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. So, Kevin, what do you make of that? Well, I would say it actually goes uh, contrary to what uh, Robert Kaplan said today about being patient. I think patient uh, to the Fed is longer than a three-month period. So, you know, when we started the year, um, we thought that June could be the next rate hike and they would be on the sidelines until then. It seems like that's now pushed to September at a minimum. And some are saying, you know, and if you look at Fed Fund's probability index, um, uh, the next double-digit chance of anything is the Fed lowering rates in January. So I, I actually think it, it means something longer than three months, and I think the Fed will kind of watch this market for the next uh, uh, probably six to nine months. So, all right, so the, the Fed is on the sidelines. Right. What do you think gets them back into the game, if you will, to re-engage? 
What do you think are the data points that they are focusing on? It centers around inflation, um, whether it's wage or price. So it, as long as in, in, in you know the latest, even the wage, our greatest hope for inflation came from wages, right? Uh, average hourly earnings slowly ticked up during the course of 18. Um, yet more recently, it's, it appears to have stopped um, or you know up one tenth or something like that. So in, until we see really uh, any wage inflation, um, price inflation, we'll get uh, numbers next week uh, with further definition. Right. It's just not there. Yeah, the interesting thing is, and somebody else has made this point, so I'm stealing it, just full disclosure. Uh, but last year, the Federal Reserve hiked uh, numerous times, and the expected inflation over the next decade plummeted. It fell off a cliff. There yeah. was no inflation pressures last year, and yet the Fed still uh, raised rates. So what changed? What changed for the Fed? Yeah. Uh, they, they realized they made a mistake by raising rates too you many times. So? And, oh, you think absolutely. That they, you yeah. think that they, they yeah. realized they made a mistake? Yeah. Two out of the three mandates were met a long time ago. The, the, the mandate of uh, inflation has yet to be met. And we touched 2% basically once for a short period of time and then fell back uh, slightly below it. So, you know, they got to their target. They said, okay, here we go. This is the launch. And, and you know, around every corner is, is another brick wall for inflation. So I, I think the world has just changed for us to calculate inflation in the way that meets the Fed's real mandate. And I think that they just missed it. In fact, part of the global slowdown is because right. of that. Well, I want to push back a little bit okay, because some on. people could say, you're like, all right, bring it. Because <laughs> uh, some people could say, all right, the inflation expectations were falling last year. Yep. The Federal Reserve still raised rates. Yep. And inflation has continued to accelerate, albeit not at the pace that people would like to see, but wages are still going up. Doesn't this say that they didn't make a mistake and that they were right to raise rates and normalize? Yeah, I mean, you can you can certainly make that argument. It, it's the problem is is you know where are we now? Um, at where we've peaked and turned back down, um, or slight increases. Um, it's not um, it's not hurting the job market, but it's not creating wealth that's going to help the economy. So you know, I, I would say that um, the Fed is is going to do more harm to the economy than meet the mandate of inflation. Um, and I, I, I doubt we'll be uh, at 2% all year long. So, Kevin, as you're out and about talking to your clients, institutional and retail clients, yep. what are they doing? What do you sense is their risk appetite? Have they really embraced this market and are back in, you know, maybe allocating more from investment grade to high yield and maybe going out on the risk curve? What are you hearing from them? You know, we've kind of, um, we've, we've taken this um, uh, approach that um, uh, they needed a shortened duration last year. Um, and uh, still invest in quality and stay away from some of the riskier aspects of the fixed income market. Um, and that proved to be pretty true until the end of the year. And then, um, you know, the Fed put the brakes on, the dollar um, uh, made some, you know, some real fundamental changes, and um, it, it felt okay uh, to go back into risk. I, I think that what we're saying this year is stay with quality, um, but you, you have the ability to go back out on the duration curve um, with your investments without getting hurt. This is so interesting to me because you're seeing this in ETF flows too, and other people are doing this as well. Uh, two funds that are actually, they've seen the biggest withdrawals year to date in the fixed income space are two short-term U.S. debt funds. So in other words, it's a reversal of the flight to cash last year, mm -hmm. coming out of cash, going into duration and going into risk. How long is that going to work? You know, it could work for a while. I think, look, the fundamental change of the bond market actually actually occurred with the elections which gave the um the democrats back the house so you know what what the market was worried if you remember the muni market uh was um kind of on its heels for the first part of the year because of uh, the tax 
uh, rebates and, and things that they that were taking them away from what was going to fundamentally be uh, able to finance in the state county municipal market. Uh, that went away with the election. And then so money started plunging back into the meeting market has actually driven spreads tighter as well as some risk and a lot of investment grade credit. So I, I think um, I think you have a real opportunity um, and we're not part of This is not a credit crisis. Uh, that we're in that doesn't appear to be one in the future. You don't have inflationary pressures that are going to hurt the long in the market. You, you can swim for a while out in the open water right now. So just real quickly, any place you're telling your clients to really just avoid? You know, this is a, we, we've had about a five-year uh, stretch for yield. And um, uh, the offset to that is a down in credit trade that um, uh, still makes us nervous. Um, there's been a lot spoken about the leverage loan market. That that index itself dropped pretty hard and then it came back up. Um, but we're still we're still a quality um quality buyer right now so if you want if you want to go long triple end muni- c's he basically is saying <laughs> yeah avoid triple c's <laughs> yeah so so long if you want to reach duration you reach it in munis if you want to reach uh for yield reach it inside of five years in corporates got it kevin kevin get us uh thanks so much kevin's executive vice president head of fixed income from raymond james based in memphis tennessee but he joins us in our 1130 studio today Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Facebook's advertising model, you know, it's come under attack, you know, yet again, particularly in Europe. So what we've had just recently in, in, in Europe is German antitrust regulators have ordered the social network to overall how it tracks its users' internet browsing, smartphone apps. It, this is once again, I think if you think about Facebook and their advertising model and social media in general, Lisa, they're really kind of coming under some increased regulatory oversight that investors, I think in the back of their mind, really have as a risk factor here. Yeah, they do except shares are not down that much, which is really the question I want to ask Alex Webb about. He's European technology columnist with Bloomberg Opinion joining us from London. Alex, why do shareholders not care more about the fact that Germany is taking a much harder stance with them? I think there are probably two things at play here. On the one hand, it might be priced into the shares already. You know, We've seen uh, the sh- uh, Facebook stock take a huge pummeling uh, since the middle of last year when it first uh, said that it was going to have to, that its margins were going to be impacted by some of the measures they were putting in place to reduce the amount of dangerous content. But equally, the this German uh, decision 
probably will take a while to play out. You know, there's going to be an appeal process. Uh, it could then, you know, ultimately be overturned. And and for now, it's only in Germany. What really becomes significant, though, and this is the issue with the German decision, is that Germany is seen as the model for the rest of Europe. Germany was almost given this as a test case by European authorities to do the legwork and see what needed to be done. And other European nations might start following suit. So, Alex, what do you think is the risk that, again, this will be more of a European-wide issue? We've seen, again, coming from the EU, um, regulations against the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world, and just U.S. technology companies in general taking a much harder view of U.S. tech. What is the the risk or the concern at this point uh, that some of these uh, uh, issues may become more European-wide? Well, the problem that Facebook has in Europe right now is that user engagement is declining. There's been a huge amount of antipathy towards its platforms, not just um, Facebook itself, but Instagram and WhatsApp. That means that it's under more pressure, therefore, to increase its average revenue per user. That means that um, it, even if the number of people who are using the website declines, it can still um, grow revenue because it's getting more ad dollars for each user. Now, in order to deliver that, they've got to have more compelling, more granular data on the users they have. And being able to tie together WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook, which is what this in- ruling is all about, that people have to consciously opt into that rather than finding a way to opt out, um, that damages their ability to find that granular data and therefore expand their, their average revenue per user to set off the declining user growth. So Alex, we should really go over what exactly this German ruling said. Basically, it was uh, it's an overhaul or it's forcing Facebook to overall how it tracks its users, internet browsing, and smartphone apps. So in plain English, why does this matter? What happens right now is if you visit a website and anywhere on, the, and you are a Facebook user, and frankly, even if you're not a Facebook user, but it, there, if on that website, there's a, a button which says, like this page or share this page, irrespective of whether you click that button or not, that website will send a cookie to Facebook servers indicating that either you, the user, or be this particular computer um, has visited this website. And that's a way of tracking, you know, how people navigate the internet, possibly what their interests are, and building up, you know, these very complex models of what people's interests are. This stops their ability to do that, to do that without people opting, actively opting into it, and therefore, you know, poses a huge risk to, to Facebook's advertising model. So, Alex, is there, what is your sense of, um, Regulatory oversight, uh, it, it seems to be obviously focused on Facebook, but how about Snap, Twitter, Google? Are you hearing that there is a, a growing sense that maybe these companies as well need to be monitored? I, I frankly, frankly, Snap and Twitter, no. These are small companies. Snap, you know, Snap uh, has about 180 million active users. Twitter, as we learned today, has about 120, 120 million. That's global, daily active users. Now, Facebook has 1.6 billion daily active users. It's just whole different realm they're operating in. Nonetheless, it is a threat for Google. Google has a similar thing. They also um, find, you know, get cookies sent to them from every website that people visit uh, and therefore build up these profiles of what your interests are. That then feeds into the ads that you get served on YouTube and in Google search. And so they are highly vulnerable to being the next company that comes into the firing line on this privacy front. I want to go back to where we started and just wrap up the conversation with this idea of, you know, how much of a financial risk is this to Facebook, to the behemoths that capture the great majority of the advertising dollars and the eyeballs? And I'm just wondering, because right now you said perhaps it's priced into the shares uh, that there will be more regulatory oversight. How does one put a price on this? How do you know what it actually is priced in? 
it's very very difficult to pass you know ultimately this is a a, a multi-stage process and we're still very early in that process um that means that people you know even with some of the difficulties Facebook's had over the past year, revenue has continued to grow. And I think there might be a sense that Facebook somehow finds a way. Now, it's, it's when the inflection point is. It's very, very hard to tell. You know, if, if those fines start getting imposed and we actually start seeing Facebook implement these measures across you know, huge markets like Europe, where it's 350 million people, something like that, you know, th- that, that is, is a huge threat to Facebook's growth opportunity. Now, it's whether in the growth economies like Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, if their regulators are as tough, and often they do follow suit for what happens in Europe, that, that's, that, that'll be the bigger concern for Facebook's next leg of growth. Alex Webb, thank you so much for being with us. Alex Webb, European technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us from London. Lisa, you and I have been talking about just um, just today on uh, the, the strength of the consumer uh, and how strong. I mean, we just had the, the a guest on talking about retail sales forecast growth of five uh, percent in 2019. So we're right in the midst of a bunch of consumer companies reporting earnings uh, over the last couple of days and help us kind of break that down and what those results mean about the consumer. We want to bring in Ken Shea. Ken is a senior analyst covering the global food, beverage, and tobacco industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. He calls in from Bloomberg's headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Again, Tyson reporting today, Kellogg's reporting today. Uh, What are some of your takeaways uh, uh, from some of these big consumer products companies? Yeah, hi, Paul. Uh, Yeah, today, uh, Kellogg and Tyson reported, you know, two bellwether companies within the packaged food industry here in the U.S. I think the broad takeaway uh, to investors is that uh, top-line sales growth remains elusive for these big companies. You know, a lot of it is secular uh, in nature. That is, there's just not many more new mouths to feed in the U.S. You know, population is pretty steady. Uh, arguably, these companies have not innovated uh, to a degree that's exciting people to go to their uh, products. Um, and it's really suffering uh, the, to- the bottom line as well. You know, it- it's hard to grow when the top line is not growing. And that's kind of the broad takeaway for both Tyson and Kellogg this round. All right. So let's start with Kellogg, uh, which is uh, near and dear to my heart because I've struggled through breakfast with two kids getting them out the door in the morning. And that seems to be the uh, demographic that Kellogg tries to cater to. Uh, Kellogg shares now down 5.4% after a disappointing earnings, uh, earnings result. And you have to wonder, talking about breakfast, how much are they shifting gears away from sugar-heavy, carb-heavy types of stuff. Is that really part of the issue uh, in sort of reshaping the view on healthy food? Yes. Hi, Lisa. That's exactly it. You know, Kellogg is, to its credit, has been really uh, cutting costs dramatically over the last few years. Uh, one of the leaders, I would, I would say, within the packaged food space. However, you, you can't really cut yourself to prosperity. Uh, the new CEO, Steve Callahan, knows that. He's come aboard and said, you know, we're going to pivot now to grow our top line. And we're going to get there by uh, investing in new product innovation. We're going to make some selective acquisitions. Uh, those are the two key ways anyway. Um, but the challenge it has is it's just over-indexed to heavy carb um, products. I mean, if you think about breakfast cereals and Pop-Tarts and Pringles and Cheez-Its, these are all... Some are growing better than others, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, that's not really in sync with where many consumers are going today. 
they're pursuing things like protein, uh, natural products with no artificial ingredients, contemporary new brands. And that doesn't really fit well to where Kellogg is right now. So what is the strategy there? Is the strategy to diversify and try to chase the organic, healthy, moving consumers, maybe you know, go, go buy some of these startups? Or is it to try to introduce new products uh, or maybe be even be more aggressive on promotion? Well, they have done a little bit of that, Paul. They recently, to their credit, bought um, RX Bar. Uh, it's one of the um, uh, products that's doing really well in the space. It's a, it's a uh, convenient health-oriented or natural snack bar that uh, caters to a lot of the themes that I mentioned. They're also chasing uh, international growth. Um, they've uh, bought a food distributor in Africa, in Nigeria, that's doing very well, and they're going to try to capitalize that and grow their international exposure. Um, and that's great, and, and it's really, they deserve credit for doing that. The challenge they have, though, is really twofold in doing that. And that is, first of all, they're not the only big uh, packaged food company trying to, you know, expand to growthier markets outside the U.S. So it comes at a healthy price tag to do that. Yeah. Uh, and second, when they buy these new assets, it requires a lot of management time and investment. So they don't really carry their weight in margin in the near term. So, uh, you know, we, we, we haven't touched on Tyson yet, which is the chicken manufacturer, distributor. Uh, and we talked about them earlier about possibly buying a sort of organic, locally sourced California Northwestern uh, chicken company. And right now it shares down nearly 3% after uh, showing that they are disappointing on their uh, earnings and on their expansion. And they are also looking for, to use your word, Ken, growthier pastures. But I have to wonder if you take a step back, how much Kellogg's and also Tyson are both symptomatic of a larger protest and shift away from big food uh, that is more processed? Well, I think that's part of it. It's hard to quantify that, but clearly um, we know that millennials today in particular are not brand conscious as as many of the parents were. Uh, We know that they like to um, eat healthier. Um, they have more information on their fingertips, namely their cell phone or their, their uh, smartphone, I should say, uh, in terms of the ingredients that are in these products. So they are a, a, a less, or I should say a more fickle, less brand loyal crowd than many of these legacy packaged food companies uh, are, so, are accustomed with. Given that that's the case, who's benefiting? Well, I would say uh, some of the comp- companies that are uh, catering to niches, um, uh, comes to mind uh, Mondelez, for instance, uh, although uh, sweet, sweet Snacks doesn't seem to cater to this. Um, they ha- are doing a good job in in uh, brand innovation. Just t- take a look at their um, Oreo uh, reinvention and expansion of the different flavors. That's actually catching on with a lot of uh, consumers, although it sounds counterintuitive, a sweet snack like that. It's actually doing pretty well. Uh, pet food uh, companies are doing well. They're tapping into the increasing trend of consumers who treat their pets like children, and they're willing to spoil them with uh, high-end premium products. And that was behind General Mills' purchase of uh, Blue Buffalo uh, last year. Uh, so that, that, that's a growth business that's doing pretty well. They pay it up for it, but nevertheless, the business is doing well. Yeah. Ken Shea, thank you so much for being with us. Ken Shea, senior analyst focused on the global food, beverages, and tobacco industries uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.